Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin, the premier podcast for all things banking, payments, and fintech. Here are your hosts, Mike Townsend, Brian Romley, and Faisal Khan. Hey everyone, welcome to Around the Coin. We have the three of us here today for another great episode. Faisal, Brian, myself, Mike here. Uh, Faisal, we'll kind of kick it off to you, man. How are things going over in Pakistan? I sometimes forget you're in Pakistan. It's just so easy to jump on the Skype call. It is. Uh, uh, it is. It is our 4th of July right now. Today, actually. Oh, in, wow. In, Independence Day. So it's a holiday. It's a Sunday, which sucks. But so specifically, uh, August, August 14th is yep, the day. Yep. And yesterday. So the independence we got today, 69 years ago. And yesterday, which was the 13th of August, was my wedding anniversary, 17 years. And I lost my independence wow. that day. So, so you know, in case you're wondering to put a ring on someone's finger, remember that. You actually wow, lose. congratulations <laughs> on that. Thank you. So, uh, all is good. Just chilling and on what the weekend. Was there, what was there, uh, for those who don't know, of course I do, but where did Pakistan be, declare independence from and what was the... Uh, our siblings are from, your cousins from up north, the United Kingdom, the British. Mm, gotcha. So, was it Pakistan ruled by the British and then... Uh, the India was. So, it was, you know, the Indians, Bangladesh, Pakistan, the, you know, the East India Company, the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, it was, uh, we got it on 15th. India got it on the 15th. We celebrated on the 14th. Uh, and quite a few other countries. So, 1947 was a, a very important year. Quite a few countries were born in that time. Israel was born in that time. India was born in that time. Pakistan was born in that time. What is mm. now Bangladesh was born in that time, although that was after the 71 war. But, uh, yeah. And do you have your, do your, do your, I guess your grandparents uh, would possibly have been alive during that time? Do they have, what are their feelings on it? Does it sound like something they were... Oh, you know, it was a very proud about to break it, off, or it was proud, but it was a very dark time. You know, there was a lot of um, uh, ethnic cleansing. There was a lot of warfare. There was a lot of fighting when people were migrating. The migration uh, that happened that time was very, uh, was a very dark period. But all in all, I guess everyone's okay now. We don't remember it because we never experienced it. We only heard stories. So there are, you know, wow. stories told by your nana and your, you know, and your grandfather and what have you. You know how bleak it was what sacrifices they made which is obviously all true but you know i guess we are desensitized by it all i don't know if that's the right wow. word to use but it, i mean you'd almost kind of over time you just forget 
the, the, the things that have happened, even if you look at like less than a hundred years ago. Yeah, I mean, I mean so let me ask you, I mean, how, how attached are you to, let's say, the Vietnam War? You probably wouldn't be, right? So it's something you know about, but you're not attached to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's the same thing with many others. If you weren't born at that time and or you, it wasn't in your cognitive memory at that time, I guess you don't have an attachment to it. It's there. It's part of history. You acknowledge it every year. You know, you wave the flag and so forth. But um, yeah, this is kind of a, maybe even a theme as we were discussing pre-show. I almost think a theme could be for our conversations, the idea of the broad strokes of history and how you interpret those. Right. When I learn about the Vietnam War, you probably learn about it in high school in, in the States. And then, you know, you read the textbook, you spend two classes, maybe talking at most on it. And then you kind of walk away from it and you don't think about it. And you sort of are left with these perceptions of what happened during that period of time when and, the reality was it was so complex you know you have and very different skew- political leaders and yeah. movements and more yeah and and, and it's, it's it, no one could even possibly understand even if you lived during it all the all the effects that happened well, during that first time. Of, first of all so much is left out uh, and then secondly I think you are told what you need to hear so there's a lot that's been censored you know uh, well who controls that narrative um, you, in our, in my part of the world, the government does. <laughs> well, damn. <laughs> so I Brian, mean, I have something to say about that. <laughs> so, but 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 yeah, you know, uh, he, there are always, uh, you know, the the fallen soldier will tell his story, the lost soldier will tell his story, but there takes two to clap, it takes two to clap, right? So there's always the flip side of the coin, and what happened on the other side. Mm, it's almost like the idea would be challenge the given narrative, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what is presented well, to you. I, I, I mean, you know, Brian and I, we when we get on our pre-show calls and Brian will tell you, I mean, he is always challenging the narrative. I mean, certain, yeah. certainly so many things and so many ideas we discuss that just like break the mold every now and then, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's funny when you initially hear something you think is it just clashes with your previous ideas of the world. Your initial reaction is to say, oh, no, there's no way. You know, your mind kind of it's already a comp- It's already past that point. It said, OK, we figured that out. You know, there's no way that could be true. And so you initially reject it. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of just being open minded to say just off the bat by default, consider it a possibility, even if it clashes with everything with everything you've already previously known to be true. Uh, and just saying, okay, how do I defute this? How do I actually prove that it's not true? And if you, a lot of times you kind of realize you don't have any evidence other than just people telling you a certain thing to be true or not true. That's right. So, Brian, Chief, how are you? Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, I'm doing wonderful, doing wonderful. I, I, I Chiming in here, I, I fully agree. I mean, we're, we're at a time in history that is... I bring keep going back to it. Uh, maybe other than Alexandrian period in uh, Egypt, where so many people have, ag- have has had access to so much knowledge and information. Uh, the biggest problem we we deal with right now is information. We're awash with information, and there's very little wisdom and knowledge coming from that. And it's almost making us. Uh, desensitized and immune to creative thought, new ways of thinking, new ideas, and open minds. In fact, one could argue that with the rise of social media, the open thinking process has actually been closing historically tighter than it's probably been in the last hundred years. So, but it's it's done in a way that's socially acceptable. It's done in a way that seems democratic. It's done in a way where the crowd 
is voting on what to censure and what to what what ideas, what views, what positions to to shout down. And you can mm. really shout down somebody and make them persona non grata online. And as we move more and more of our existence and life online, being labeled as um, any labeling, I you know both both sides of an argument wind up using labeling as a intellectually and morally bankrupt way of dealing with things that they don't want to really delve into. If you have a truly in, in, inventive and open and creative mind, everything is open to possibility. The world is like every morning you wake up, the world is like a child. Uh, you're, you feel like a child and you look at it with marvel and fascination that you're going to make a couple of new discoveries and you're going to set down some old preconceived notions today and foist forward some new notions and have the flexibility to do it all over again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's the Even hardest Brian, thing for human beings. I hardest like the thing. idea too. I was thinking about it more after our pre-show conversation, which was another great one, just around, I think we target as humans, people who systematically or intentionally look to hide information or change narratives intentionally. You know, we picture people up in, you know, C-suites and corporate companies or the political White House just saying, okay, we want the American people to believe this. And that's what I think really... Uh, elicits that kind of strong emotional response to say, no, you know, we want, we want to fight to know the information, et cetera. But I think when it's like systematic is when it's, there's no one specific to blame. It's almost an outcome of the system that was created to say, you know, whether it be healthcare or the financial markets, but certain truths get to be known throughout the population as just being the way they are. And no one intentionally uh, created that. It just, it sort of became well, the way. And so there's no scapegoat. There's nothing to actually, there's no one actually pursued a change to make an immediate impact on changing ideas. There, there is a systematic system. It's called parts of, of, of the human experience. Um, I'll use a, a good analogy, which I literally had demonstrated right in front of me when I was a child on the Jersey shore going crabbing. And I remember um, being out there and we would load up these crab baskets and I always was fascinated by the idea that I could throw a crab in there and even though they could get out, none try to come out or none are successful in coming out. And I started sitting there and observing it and um, old man, literal old man from the sea walks by and he said, what are you looking at? And I go, that crab's trying to come out. He goes, he won't make it. And I go, why don't they ever make it? And he goes, because he's not allowed to leave. And this has now become, I didn't know if it was an analogy throughout history or it's now become more of a popular analogy, but I saw it firsthand. The crab, the, the crab basket mentality is when a crab starts seeing one of its own leave the basket, the very first thing they do is they take the strongest claw and grab onto that crab. And if that's not restraining them, the next one grabs and then the next one, and they all grab onto each other until everybody falls back into the pot. Um, there's a whole lot of reasoning for that. You can get into animal psychology. You can go on preservation of the group. It, it doesn't matter. And we can see this sort of group behavior with birds. We can see it with uh, farm animals. Uh, for example, if you've ever been in farm country and uh, you have open, um, open uh, grazing for cows, you're going to see about 12 to 6 white stripes written across the road. 
literally painted across the uh, road. They're, they're called uh, cattle grades or, or, or cattle marking or cattle lines. And you look at them and you say, what in the heck is that? And you see a fence on either side of the road and then these lines in the middle of the road. And guess what? Cattle will not cross those lines. And what's really interesting is, why don't they cross those lines? Well, you can dive into the rabbit hole of science and research and assumptions behind it, but the bottom line is they have a fear of crossing those white lines because of perhaps current memory or, here's where the controversy comes, ancestral memory, you know, uh, Pan's DNA memory, built-in memory. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. They will not cross those lines because somewhere along their mindset, their hooves, being of a certain size and the ability to grab it in a certain way, the lines are separated at such a manner with the assumptions that the dark part of the lines are a hole and the white part of the lines are a stationary point that they have fear that they could never coordinate their legs across that area and it's too wide for them to jump. Therefore, just a few lines of white along a dark road is enough to stop an entire herd of very, very powerful animals from crossing. Not, not very confident beings, are they? No, neither are human beings. <laughs> we, we are all animals, and we all create our own white lines, black lines, whatever you want to call it, about everything in our life. And we do that so that we can get about the business of surviving, right? We have to pay, uh, you know, we have to pay our bills. We have to get about, you know, moving things from point A to B, cooking our food, watching, you know, the football game, the baseball game, you know, playing a video, whatever. You can go down the whole tree of events, uh, the Maslow tree of events, if you will, that people will do. But with open minds, you're, you're questioning. You're questioning whether or not those lines on the road are real. And guess what happens? If I take one bull, typically it's a bull, and uh, I don't want to get into the psychology behind it. If I take one bull and I teach him, to come across those lines. By the way, I can't pull him across. There's no way I can do it. His power would stop me. But if I motivate him, and this is done in Texas one time, it doesn't matter where that happens within the field. It does not have to even be in the view of the cows that are in the field. Once that one bull makes it across, the entire facade is no longer available for that uh, group of cattle. They would know, That group of cattle will no longer uh, honor those white lines as a barrier. And that is the best analogy I can give you about the human existence. We're in a crab pot or a crab basket, if you will, and outliers and, and creative thinkers, although we, we try to trump, trumpet them and, and honor them, when they first show up, like you said, Mike, they are immediately, by most people, rejected. And here's where it gets interesting. The more educated and the more worldly, generally, the more ferocious and the more aggressive the rejection is. And this is where a lot of knowledge or some knowledge is a barrier to new insights and new ways of seeing the world. And uh, history has shown that this is a fact. Mm -hmm. It is a crab is a crab pot mentality, but is it also it is also a cattle line mentality. Um, because if everybody starts straying out outside these lines, now there is no containment. There is right. nothing right. but free thought. Yeah. So 
That's the best way I can analogize this. And human beings are no different. I'm, I'm the same as you and everybody else. We all have our same biases towards these things. The only thing one can do is every morning to try to reinvent yourself, to try to say, what is it that I'm going to look at? What is it? Am I going to try to understand? And, and, um, Again, it, it's it's a student. It's not an expertise thing. You're you're, you're in forever a student in trying to understand the the universe around us. Amen. Uh, so Faisal, you brought up Robert. I want to say Reich. Um, probably mispronouncing that. Robert. Robert. I say, Reich. Reich. I, I say I say Robert Reich, but I mispronounce everything. So Robert Reich is the former uh, Secretary of Labor for the U.S. And you know, I was reading his books, and one of the things I came across was, you know, how this entire economy is, you know, going down the, uh, the tubes and we're not thinking about it and, you know, why there's a lot of um, labor discontent. Specifically, if you look at the average uh, median income for you know, for the middle class since the year 2000, uh, adjusted for inflation, has actually gone down since 2000. And, you know, he was arguing so many various factors. And one of the factors he's mentioned was that, you know, it's it's a lot to do with uh, technology. It's a lot to do with, you know, how automation is taking over and so forth. And, uh, you know, he actually quoted a paper by uh, the famous economist John uh, Maynard Kynes. It's called The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. It was written in 1928. And he's, he postulized that 100 years from now, which is uh, 2028, uh, 12 years from now, the biggest dilemma we would be facing would be how to spend our leisure time. And, you know, God knows how wrong uh, Mr. Keynes was. And it's because we've adopted this new classical or neoliberalism policies in our banking and economic system and you know we, we, we can talk about everything but one particular aspect of the entire talk that was very interesting he says there's a lot of financial anxiety with respect to healthcare, which is something right up your alley and I thought we'd discuss that you know and, and, and he said that you have 30 million Americans out of work and you know retooling and all that is fine you know but retooling would most likely entail automation it would probably not hire thousands and thousands of people you know he quoted the example of spacex spacex employs a couple of thousand people not the tens and tens of thousands of people that were employed in the earlier space programs with nasa and so forth and he says, what, what are these people going to do? What is a lumberman going to do? What is the, you know, the guy who used to work in the assembly line for some clothing manufacturer going to do? What is the guy who used to be a die-cast mechanic going to do and so forth? And the area that, that is huge is what is called the personal attention economy. And that has you know, nine areas. It's, I'll, I'll read them out. It's healthcare, surface transportation, hotel, therapy, physical therapy, retail, hospital, restaurant, and elder care. And, you know, that got me thinking, you know, today healthcare in the U.S. is just way out of control. And it's way out of control because the economy is out of control and the economy is out of control is because how the banking and, you know, the whole system is and corporates have to make more and more money, the inequality and so forth. So I thought that would be a good topic to discuss and, you know, take it from there on as to why healthcare in, in the U.S. is skyrocketing. You know, uh, if you, I mean, we talked about, you know, the crab example that Brian just gave. If you even talk about alternative medicine, you are essentially an outcast. You know, you are, you're, the system will actually throw you out. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we talked yeah, a lot about I, this. It's, it's a big topic. Yeah, we talked a lot about this pre-show. And um, here's what I can say. Absolutely everything is considered fringe when it first is uh, brought in. All of the major advancements in any technology and any science and politics and everything is always coming from a place where people least suspect it. And there is a tendency for the momentum to continue on. An object in motion tends to want to stay in motion even when human beings are in control of it. And in, if the trajectory is we're going to deal with healthcare in this manner, you know, uh, what, what we'll deal with you after you're sick is, is really the best way uh, that one could, some, you know, distill down where um, healthcare is in, in modern society. Modern society says, when you get sick, we'll, we'll help fix you. It only tends gently touches upon how you got there. You know, we, we have uh, food pyramids, right? Uh, this is what you should eat. Uh, we have diets. We have lifestyles. We have things that could influence your health. And then there is this, we don't know why you're sick scenario, which ultimately winds up extending itself across vast swaths of medicine over time. Uh, everything becomes a mystery, not really known. It becomes more unknown. If you look at you know, the direction of some medical science, uh, there's less and less known as more and more money is spent. You can draw your own conclusions on what that means. But, but, uh, yeah. but Brian, let's talk about that money, right? The modicum of economic security is retirement, right? Everyone looks after, looks forward towards retirement. The health care... Well, let's define, let's define retirement. What does retirement mean for all of us here? What, what, what is that definition? I mean, I mean, re mean, retirement basically has three basic components. One is obviously a sustained income provided by your savings or your you know, 401k plans or social security, etc. Uh, the nomenclature may differ from country to country, but basically you have to live off because you're not working anymore. So you're getting paid by someone or okay, some... Okay, okay, question, question. So, some, no, no, let, let, me, let me complete what? the three. Some yeah. entity. The second is obviously affordable housing. And, uh, you know, affordable housing also includes cost of living adjustments and so forth. And the third is healthcare. Healthcare is so important. And healthcare, it seems, and this is right up Mike's alley, that healthcare seems to be spinning out of control as far as costs are concerned. Well, I, I, I got I to first say this. Perhaps the modalities of how we define our life may be one of the things that Reich was talking about indirectly or one could draw these conclusions from it um you know unfortunately everything has to come down to a philosophical basis if you really want to be successful in analyzing your life and we can also look at the full uh you know nature of how these things are connected to your longevity and your health uh some of the longest lived individuals on the planet let's call them the blue zones one of the biggest things that they have in, in, in common, and we can talk later on in the show with what all these things that they have in common, is that they have a life purpose. And that life purpose includes they don't really view retirement the way we currently do in a modern context. They don't see life separated from work 
separated from family, separated from health, separated from medicine. They're all a continuity. And so most of these people die in their 100-year or 105-year mark still, quote-unquote, working by the definitions that we apply today. And some of them don't have long-term health care or insurance or retirement funds. So I'm not saying that they work out of necessity. I'm saying, and, and that could be one of the reasons, but I'm, I'm primarily saying they work because they don't make a distinction that we do under the current paradigms that we're using. And perhaps that whole way of viewing human existence in thirds, right? Everything breaks down in thirds, right? Uh, uh, the first third of your life, you're gaining knowledge. The middle third, 30 years, let's say, let's say you hope to live to 90. Your first 30 years, hopefully you're learning. The next 30 years, you're applying. And a lot of people think the next 30 years are your retiring or you're dying. Um, this is true because this is how we've arranged society. And part of what Reich was talking about is certain types of mechanical labor. Uh, let's call it highly unskilled mechanical labor is being replaced by machines. Now, Mr. Reich could have made that statement in 1875 and in 1700. This is a continuity. The only thing that would, the only thing that's changed, the only thing that's changed, you have to remember, there was a group of uh, rebellious individuals that would break down machines, and I, I'm trying to re remember their word, uh, the name of their this group. Uh, they were well known, and they would literally go into factories and break machines because their idea was the machine was taking away their humanity and taking away their ability to have a living. And this was taking place uh, in the early industrial revolutions, uh, you know, throughout, you know, the world. What happens is when we replace human basic unskilled labor with a machine, it does not mean that that person unilaterally is displaced in the entire economy. They're displaced in that factory, in that area, for that yeah, yeah. arc you're, of 30 years. Let me, you're probably talking about saboteurs. Yeah, the, the original saboteurs, but they had another name for it. I don't know why I'm forgetting it today, but, uh, you know, th they would literally purposely uh, do this. Now, so what I'm trying to point out is, and I'm not trying to dilute uh, what Mr. Reich is saying. What I'm saying is, if you study history, there's an arc of, of every society. It goes through these cycles, and it's, a, it, it's sort of like uh, a spring effect or an elastic effect where society gets pulled, and then we change the way we organize society. In that era... What the machines were replacing, and let's say the first era, were sometimes child laborers. Uh, we're laborers. We're talking about uh, children that were seven, eight, nine years old. Now, that sounds horrific, but if you look at the epoch, it, it becomes much more realistic. Because in that epoch, the agricultural communities that we formed, child workers around farm machinery, were not just common they were required. Family farms were the only farms that really existed. There was no real industrial feeding. The entire families and family unit would be big, 12 kids, 12 kids well, Brian, in the family. Even, I mean, back then in those days, you have to, I'd almost rewind the clock in our current challenges and say, where did we come from to have to go through some of these decisions of, you know, imagine I give you a pill, a magic pill, and sure. it's going to extend your life 
up up until infinite infinity so you can live as long as you want but it costs more and more with every increasing year to maintain and the cost comes at a debt a cost to society so the question now is like well how do you budget in the cost of assuming you could extend it forever you know you sort of look at a a, a vertically converging curve where the cost is on the y axis and as cost goes up you can live longer but it comes at a greater cost to society so you can pull away two years of a high school education for all of American children and give it to extend a 105-year-old's life to 109. And I think for the first time in history, really in the last 100 years, in the last 20 years, really, we've had this ability to extend life seemingly beyond our our wits. You know, the the technology that goes into end-of-life care costs upwards of 35% of what you would receive for care for the entire life. So oh, sure. you're, you're, you're looking at the, even even more than that. The vast majority of the Medicare, Medicaid patients spend well, 75% of the dollars uh, on the last couple of years of their life. So the question is, how do you budget in, right? For the first time in history, we've had the decision to make, which is how do you weigh life, right? Because of, uh, out of all human history, it's been, I want to live as long as possible. But then you only have a couple tools at your disposal, Right, your tools are like eat healthy, uh, eat enough to stay alive, and have protection in your, your society, so you so you don't get killed by anything. Now we have this ability to really extend it. Technology is really the enabler; it's the it's the catalyst for allowing us to spend a ton of money. But the money comes at a cost from other areas. Well, technology right, so, has always uh, been technology has always been an enabler of extending life. It's not anything it's, new. It's now now is it's the new part about it now is that it actually is you can purchase a ten million dollar machine to extend someone's life and, and, and read, um, you know, if it's like a CAT scan or whatever it may be, drugs at the, at the end stage uh, uh, of a person's life. So you have the ability to spend much more than you ever could throughout well, history. Well, you have to, you, again, we have to unfortunately uh, bring, bring this back down. I mean, uh, first, when you started off, you were saying about education and things like that. Well, we have to establish some ground rules. The thing that started what we are living through right now was a European Enlightenment, uh, the intellectual movement of the 17th and 18th century. You have to remember that if you look through history, the Dark Ages began at the destruction of the Library of Alexandria, and that lasted quite a few, uh, well, I would say at least a thousand years. Uh, Some would argue longer, some would say shorter. Uh, During that period of time, there was no medical science that we can think of. Uh, People got an infection, they didn't even clean it. They died. There was uh, very little sanitary uh, scenarios. Just the sanitary aspect of people uh, extended them. Uh, and, and there were certain groups, certain religious sects, and certainly certain nobility sects that understood, but not all of them, that if you washed your body, you might live longer. <laughs> simple as that. Uh, simple uh, things like that. Uh, so infections, but even at the time, no one, no one would take that to be true. That's even no, questioning, that, but, you know, oh, that, no. that comes with resistance. You that, would that actually get, initially would be, yeah. In, in some circles, you would get burned at the stake if you said you needed to wash. If, if during the dark ages, if you said, I need to wash my hands, whatever that means, whatever language, uh, you could get burned at the stake. That's uh, like the because, cow crossing the line. Exactly. Just, because just didn't, so, yeah. so now our challenge is every epoch throughout history, every single one of them, have these types of things. What are those things that are taking place today? What are those things that are the cattle gratings that are stopping us? What are those things that are making us 
not see the blindly obvious. It was blindly obvious to us today that we should wash our bodies. Well, one we way, one way Malcolm Gladwell would say to go about this is look at the things that are the most blindingly obvious and, and address those first and say, sure. let's pretend that those are not true. Right. That, you know, maybe our goal shouldn't be to extend someone's life as long as possible. And then when you say them, whatever they are, they should sound like, whoa, you know, it should, it should really hit a core moral truth that you've taken to be true up to this point. Um, you know, like whether it's the role in government or the role in medicine and technology, each one well, of these has certain implicit assumptions with them. Here's a the problem with when we start. Uh, I would call playing God with the lifespan of a human being. Um it was heretical. But define that, but, but define that though, because right, we, well, we play God just by giving each other medicine and hugs and anything yeah, that well, well, stands all right, life. All right. the, the, uh, the God aspect is that we judge whether or not somebody's life is valuable to extend it or not. So let's go back to, uh, again, in history, because this is how we, we learn. At one time, the average person would last to about 30-odd years. If you were to make the statement amongst your peer group that you wanted to live to be 100 years old, a couple of things would start happening. Number one, they would call you crazy. Number two, they would say it was impossible. Number three, if that happened, it wouldn't be fair. Because they said there's only so many hectares or acres that we have. There's only so much food. And after we get by on so many kids on this land and so many young folks, you're going to be taking the, the, the food out of the mouth of babies. And that's just not fair. So you really shouldn't last past 35 or 40 because your useful life is not very valuable to us. Well, you'd almost say the only way, the only, you know, if you had two different tribes throughout history and one had to evolve and one didn't, the one that would evolve would be the one that favors the young, that favors giving food. If you not, have food, you know, you have, you have, but no, that's listen, not, this point, Brian, would be if I have, you know, one ounce of food and it's going to sustain someone for a week, I either give it to the you know elder in the tribe or I give it to the baby. If I give it to the elder, the baby dies. If I give it to the baby, the elder dies. And so the tribe that survives would be the one that gives it to the baby, well, right? The one they, that, they, that provides just, you know, purely for the most simplistic I, form of well, the example, creating, you have to, you know, give we're preference a scenario, to the generation. We're creating a scenario of, of limited uh, – Limited bounty. Exactly. Black, limited bounty just that, shows where your moral exi- truths come. But it, you know, it does ex- exist sometimes. No. All right, all right, I mean, on, it certainly does. Let, let's, there, let's go there down. are examples where it does. Well, no, let's, go, let's go down to the human ingenuity over, over, overcomes these challenges, right? So what happens in a society that uh, says that, you know, I got to make a choice between feeding the old and feeding the young. That is a society that's turned inward and not outward. That is a society that has decided that there's no innovation, there's no creativity left for us to expand upon these conditions and to go further. Now, if we were just in our little communities and we stayed this way, you and I wouldn't exist because basically before the written word, the wisdom keepers of each society were usually the older women. There was the Shah woman or the witches, as we would call them witches later on when we uh, invaded cultures as Europeans and and, and some uh, ancient cultures. Um, They were the wisdom keepers. If they were taking out, the society performed its first lobotomy. It's taken out its knowledge of its ability to survive. So really, we are the product of our generosity to extend the life of our elderly. 
Now, the question is, it comes back to that point of the Enlightenment. What started our Industrial Revolution was not the idea of machinery. It was the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, the basic idea was this, that given the ability of the creative mind to challenge any problem, we can come up with solutions for that problem. And this is how we do it. We, we flood our mind with as much knowledge and education as possible, and sometimes as far away from something mechanical and something uh, that would be coming out of a trade school. And we will start discovering new technologies that the tradesmen wouldn't have been able to discover. Now, this you're, you're 100% a, right. I, I firmly well, agree with you. It's more around elite. just how do we, if you, if you shave back the actions of our society, right, the distribution of Medicare, the distribution of sure. military, the distribution of education funds, the distribution of Social Security, everything else, what, what are we really doing? We're putting money where our minds find value. And whether it's collective, whether it's centralized in government, whether well, it's a combination of both, which is probably the case, somehow we're valuing education. Somehow we're, you, you can see, you know, we would say, okay, for instance, right, my, my recent thought over the last couple of weeks has been if we value the existence of our human species, if, if I truly, Mike Townsend, believes inside that he wants the human species to live for another million years and I, I focus on that, what would I do? I would probably donate maybe 1% of my money to nuclear research or nuclear peace treaties or some form of preventative research around existential threats. Global warming and nuclear are the two ones that could seriously wipe us off in the short term. And so you would think that as society, if we truly believed that there is some value in extending our species, as opposed to like expending, extending our own life and our own children's lives, then we would systematically, as a society, decide to donate and spend money on researching. But instead of that, we spend 5,000 more X percentage on cigarettes and plastic surgery and everything else instead of, you know, research on how do we, how do we maintain a peaceful society? How do you set up treaties and uh, the, essentially the alliances thing, that not... But, but the thing, Mike, yeah. is we, we are not making the decision that we as corporations and corporations are doing it for, you know, for economic purposes, for make a profit and so forth. There may be many, many things that would make sense to invest in today, but we don't but do I, I I agree with your point, but I would say there's from a government's perspective, the government issues funds, billions and billions of dollars to research and grants and, and NASA, for instance. All of these are in categories of which that are not for um, uh, explicit returns, right? They are for you know, NASA was funded for the exploration and proliferation of space technology and spreading the idea. Uh, I mean, we, you know, the you the, know. the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, there were very different times. You know, uh, just look at 2008 when all the money was lent to the banks for, so that they could be bailed out. There was the assumption, and you know, it was 50 billion dollars, I think, from one of the Obama's campaigns. Uh, so not campaign, the bailout plan that had to be pumped in so that lending could be done. Lending for mortgage, le mortgage-based lending could be done. Only five billion was spent. So even though the government spent the money, it seemed like a good idea. Did it trickle down? No, it did not. Well, you know, yeah, guys, but I, I, yeah. My only thought here is is really just that if we if we truly value it, and I'm, what I'm kind of deriving is that we don't. 
to, you know, TLDR, but I think there's not a, inside of us, there's not an innate feeling throughout history because there's never needed to be where no one has ever thought in history of the millions of years we've been around that I need to do something. There's something within my power in my life that I can do that will, that will impact the lives of 100 generations down the road that doesn't impact my own. That's, I would like, well, no one hit, well, let me make this point, Brian, there's something to say that today we can sacrifice our, our, 1% of income or 1% of something in our lives that will benefit the likelihood that we'll all be around. And I think that statement couldn't be said true. It just is counterintuitive and counterproductive to the incentives of all humans throughout history, right? Because the thing that would keep your species alive the longest would be the thing that keeps you alive. You know, so you fight, you mate, you have a family, you eat, you do everything you can. And by doing so, you're actually benefiting the species as itself. You know, today, if I just like Faisal's great example, capitalism, if I get all the money and I, I take it to myself and I build my own little castle, it doesn't necessarily help uh, uh, your, you know, if you fight as a country and your country wins at a certain point, if you just blow up every other country, you have a lower chance of your species surviving just because of the pure level of destructive technologies and impact that we have in the world. And even the, the idea of global warming is just it doesn't really fit into our mechanical structure of incentives throughout history, right? We're always, you know, burn as much as you can, do as much as you can to stay alive and, and procreate and grow. But now we have this this new player, right, to say, whoa, now we actually we don't want to grow as fast as we can. It's worth growing a little slower using, you know, sustainable energy instead of fossil fuels, possibly, right, to say that we might, uh, you know, take a one or two percent slow in productivity, realign our technologies and then, you know, make a long term investment in our species. I don't think we're really programmed to think long term like that. And you can kind well, of see that in the in the way we spend money as a country in a world. Well, listen, everything in nature is self-correcting at some point, right? If human beings make the fatal mistake, they get reset and something else dominates. But I don't want to get too caught in minutia, but I got to start with one premise. Where does this all come from? And I keep going back to the Enlightenment because that's what started the Industrial Revolution, ultimately. It was this idea that all education doesn't have to be vocational. And it's it's funny because one of the reasons why we have problems today is most university education is vocational. It's sad to say it in this way, and a lot of people get angry at me over this, but it's a vocational education. I'm going in to become a doctor. I'm going in to become a lawyer. I'm going in to become a programmer, computer scientist, data scientist. These are vocational educations, practical, pragmatic. You go out, you get a job, you, you, you don't upset the apple cart. You move the stone up the hill a little bit. You make a little money. You have some time off on the weekend and maybe retire one day to get away from the rat race. And then you fade off into nothingness. The Enlightenment came out of a very, very dark era. Obviously, it's called the Dark Ages. came out of a dark era because it was morally, intellectually, and just about any way you could look at it, bankrupt. And these Enlightenment individuals said, listen, the only way the human can survive is by a free mind, a free body, and a free society. With this basic philosophical concept by Kant and, and Descartes, uh, uh, Locke, I mean, you know, you, uh, you, you, Adam Smith, Adam Smith, if you go back to the the root of this tree that we're living in, because this is where the root's planted, it's not planted in... 
really Egypt or or Samaria, although there's connections, there's roots to it, but it's not really planted there. It's not Greek or Roman society. It's from the uh, Enlightenment and what came from that. What these individuals said, that the more that we raise up every human being to a, cos- a cosmos education, an education of everything, and a love and respect for lifelong learning, we will have an enlightened society that will always be flexible to change because change is always among us. We let go of that. We started formalizing organized education in the United States in a very effective way in the early 1900s. There was some premises of what some people called the liberal arts education, but that was not the enlightenment education that was really fostered in that era. It was a watered down, very monolithic version of that. What they were really talking about is learning how to be a learner, learning how to constantly question your society. The love of wisdom. That is exactly it. And, we have we Milo have let <laughs> yes we have let go we have let go of that premise and it's happening right in front of us with some of the most brilliant minds i talked to some of the br- most brilliant minds and when they reach the apex of their career and they start retracting from that and maybe retiring maybe changing their direction they said you know one of the biggest mistakes i made is I figured if everybody just learned how to program, if everybody just got STEM education, the world would be better. And in reality, that's already happening. There are societies that have produced more engineers than the United States. And right, you can look right. around, and this is, this is going to hurt some people. We can look at parts of the world, and I'm not going to name specific parts of the world, where they have more engineers fully university-credentialed engineers with STEM science background per square mile than anywhere else in the United States. They live in deplorable conditions. The opportunities are not as great. Well, yeah, as I think your, your point is like the, the, the natural quick assumptions to say we're in a construction period, right? It's online. We're building. You know, We're in the, the 20s and 30s of, of the boom of, of building websites and building apps. And I kind of agree with you in that it's not about your ability to build. It's about your ability to create something that truly spreads, right? You can exactly. have 10,000 apps out there, but there's only one that takes 99% of the market share. So it's exactly. not necessarily about deploying as much code or, or building as much infrastructure. You certainly need that, right? You need that. That's a key part of your tool. You need great education systems so people know how to create great technologies. But I kind of agree in that even I, I forget it was pre-show or during the show, but we were saying uh, SpaceX as an example to say this is one of the most exciting technology companies out there just in a, in a league of their own. But they've only got maybe, I, I don't know, 5,000 employees. You know, they're not sure. at 100,000. You know, you don't, you don't need armies and armies of people. You really need a, a small percentage of the population who can build something uh, truly magnificent. Um, let, let's let's look at at, at the prox, you know the, the the projections that economists make into the future and about limited resources and about you know something's got to be done because we you know, what happens is they assume that the creative spirit of the human being will not overcome these challenges. They say it's impossible. There's only so many resources. There's only so, and and what happens is life has a way and we're part of life. 
life has a way of overcoming these obstacles in ways that we can't imagine. If we could, it would be clear to the economic researchers, oh, yeah, that's what they'll do and they'll fix it. I'll give you an example. Back in the 1800s, they said, all of the railroads that will ever need to be built will be built in the next 25 years. And then all of the labor needed to build railroads will be out of work and there's nothing that they need to do and all they're going to be doing is servicing the existing lines. So we're going to have an enormous, this is real fact in history, enormous unemployment that's going to take over this country. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. I, I always find fascinating the massive given assumptions at a certain time period and how crazy off they turn out to be. I mean, yes. almost like it, like the things that we're investing in today and we believe to be massively true, you know, may turn around to just be absolutely meaningless and a, and a waste uh, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, if That's you try to look saying. at it, it's, so, and so even like we, we were saying, Brian, one, one of the, I do yeah. want to transition to the healthcare aspect because I find it so yeah. fascinating around the, the placebo is a largely, um, a not understood, but hugely impactful influence in medicine. And the idea of us being so confident around what we know, what has been effective in medicine, I think is still at the like absolute tip of, tip of the iceberg that the, the impact of what we do in medicine is just, um, you know, I, I think like we're scraping off clues to the impact that it has on lives, but the idea that we're, you know, rewinding 150 or even a couple thousand years, you're just doing basic, basic things to maintain health and life expectancy goes from 35 to 90, which is great. But it's like, do we still know what's happening at the deepest levels? And I think the answer is pretty much no, that we've all kind of agreed on that. And, you know, it's just an interesting area to discuss whether there are massive misunderstandings or, or things that we'll take for granted today and we'll really question going forward. And who's going to be that, you know, Galileo at the time to say, you know, maybe this is not the way it is. Maybe it's a completely new dimension, new direction. Well, and how be, you flip, be careful, uh, be careful with Galileo. That. Be careful with Galileo, Mike, because Galileo lived a life of depression under house arrest. Basically, I don't know how to say this uh, simply, but, you know, the fact that the placebo effect is now growing in the United States to a level that cannot be fully understood should be an entrepreneurial opportunity, not an opportunity to get angry, not an opportunity to get wow, there's some kind of conspiracy uh, or you're trying to say that it doesn't matter. You know, as an empiricist, as a researcher, you look at it and you say the placebo effect is skyrocketing. That is a fact. It's not disputable. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the like if you boil it down, the one thing we just have no clue is the the hard question of consciousness, you know, like and that that really is where as as a world, all of our people just we point in different directions and our, our deep understanding of the world, what we believe to be true, if it's reincarnation or Christianity or Muslim or whatever is, you know, is happening in different parts of the world that kind of steers your interpretation of consciousness and and the real bigger questions of life. And those are the ones that there, I don't think there is a given truth, and that's probably a good thing, that the entire world doesn't believe one faith as even it did at one point. I, I think at one point there was something like 90% of the population of humans believed in Zeus in ancient Greek mythology. I mean, that was just kind of the forced upon belief structure. And, you know, that's changed. It'll change again in the future. But it kind of, if you look at the trends and the changing purely as as only the changes, it shows you there's got to be... Uh, there's got to be things that are largely believed to be true by billions of people who just can't, who just w won't be true going forward. 
And if you there's, take that, there's a guarantee of that, Mike. There's guaranteed right. that that's happening right before our eyes. There's no doubt about it. And so, if you believe that, and you would ask, do if you're in one of the, say, you choose three of the major billion plus believer faiths, and if you're a subscriber to one of those, then you'd think that there has to be uh, the realization that you could be wrong. And I, I, I don't know if people really just would accept that and keep going purely for the benefits of what they get out of the rituals, right? Like my, my family having grown up in a Catholic household, I think there was largely beneficial rituals that are aligned with the faith. And whether or not you believe the details of it are sort of, in a way, a detail. You know, they're, you know, oh, there's a God. Yeah, we, we kind of take that for granted. But people just, it, if, if it doesn't negatively impact you, why not take it? Why not just agree to it and take that as the narrative and then don't challenge it and then you know, accept all the benefits that come along with it. You get to see people on Sunday. You get to have the, you know, nice singing rituals together. Um, it, I can see how it well, becomes so proliferated and, you know, it, Mike, it, it, maybe that's, that's fine. And that's a good thing. It comes down to, uh, that's why I keep coming down to the enlightenment and education. The enlightenment said, find the fire in your soul, find the fire in your mind, find the fire in your belly, challenge everything you see and, and, and make this adventure. Challenge your the original doctoral thesis was not a rubber stamping of what came before. It was a challenge of everything that came before. And it was welcomed in that original epoch. It would say, come into my university, tear down everything we built and erect something new. That was the enlightenment. That's what started science. The question is, anybody listening to my voice, do you really believe that that is the culture we live in today? Do you really believe the person going into university is there to tear down every single assumption, you know, in sometimes a vicious manner. These were, you know, yelling and screaming matches. There were, you know, there was uh, all sorts of defenses. This was not just one or two students. It was the entire university population. You couldn't get in there unless you had that rebellious spirit. That's the way it was mm. formed. So yeah. we have vocational we have vocational edu education institutions. I'm not against them. We need them. We need everything that we have. I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm just saying that if you think that all of our assumptions, let's take medicine. You think that all of our assumptions in medicine are correct today, then you are violating every single law yeah. of history. Well, history is one, a law. One, one, it's a one law. One thing I would give, I'd give credit to the, the medicine department is that they very much acknowledge that they're on the, well, it's almost like while you're in caveman days, you know, you're in caveman days. And I think that's a bit of, that's a bit of enlightenment in itself is to say, you know, there are things we do that we just know to be, they work, they make an impact. So we do them. We know they're not completely utopian scientific. Well, Faisal, I do want to ask you though. Uh, so, you know, Going along the theme of looking at a culture and trying to understand people in that culture's susceptible um, perception of change, right? If you you'd almost have you know on one extreme you have the army that doesn't question anything; they are completely in line with the leader, the beehive mentality. On the other end, you have you know the volatile people who are always kicking up revolution ideas. They're always qu questioning and challenging the norms. They don't take anything for granted. You know they're always questioning conspiracy ideas. So you have one end just being open-minded, questioning everything. The other end falling in line. Where do you see? The U.S. versus, you know, Pakistan or other parts of the world that you see. Um, do you think there's something built into cultures that make them more or less likely to question things and break out of the the given narratives? 
No, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think it's uh, it's an innate quality that's within the people, within every culture. You can't say that this country is better than the other one because they are questioning everything. I think there's a lot of conformity. The 99.9% of the world is just conforming to the way things are. They get out of the bed, they go to work, they come back, they've got enough problems. But then you also have mm-hmm. to understand that the ones who are questioning everything, the ones who are you know, taking a different perspective and are, you know, saying, well, why is this this? Why isn't this way? You know, or who is he to tell me? Or why, why, why do we have to, you know, not playing in that, not, not conforming to the rules laid out are the ones who have been making progress all our lives. Everything that has come out, all technological, scientific, all the breakthroughs, etc., they were all either done by accident or by, you know, looking at things another way, questioning the norms and so forth. It is when they got out of their comfort zone, so to speak, intellectual comfort zone, physical comfort zone, what have you, is when progress was made. Today, we sort of brandish that to be conspiracy theorist. Oh, he's a, you know, he's, he, 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 oh, you don't know him. You know, he's a, he's a leftist or he's a what, you know, he's a classical guy. He's old school. Labeling, labeling. Yeah, labeling, thank you, thank you. There you go. I mean, labeling. It's just way too much labeling. And the one thing that irks me about the the label conspiracy theorist is, you know, when say, oh, that's conspiracy theorist, I really feel like telling the other person, you know, it would be a conspiracy theorist if you, on the other hand, were at least on a level with me with the knowledge gained so that I could actually argue with you. But because you have no defense, you know, what's the what's the rationale? Oh, it's conspiracy theory, you know? So I think that's... The, I, 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 to answer your question, I don't think so. There's any country that would come out and so forth. I think the free mind movement happens in every country, in every culture, and has happened for thousands of years and will continue to happen so for thousands of years, hopefully. Well, and it's according to how authoritarian it is to have a free mind in a particular epoch in a particular country. i got to give another parable here, which I think is really important. We use Tesla a lot, but you have to remember, you know, there was a a, uh, telegraph that was a a telegraph industry that was massive uh, in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, that became the primary way of technology for communicate the, the, the technology for communication and everybody and also within, banking by the way not to forget that. and banking it, banking and technology are and, and medicine they're all interrelated that's why anybody listening to this show we, there's a method to our madness and why we're covering some of these peripheral areas because they all tie together a guy named tesla started theorizing that he could wirelessly communicate on a radio frequency signal which by the way people weren't even sure existed the the physicists at the time weren't even sure that a true radio frequency signal that we know of today exists because they didn't want to they were debating whether or not an ether exists and that is this place where it's nowhere i don't want to go down that rabbit hole but there is a whole lot of this is where it started physicists the people who were leading the, you know, this particular form of science would look at Tesla's work and say, oh, he's just, he's just an inventor. He's not a physicist. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Radio waves don't work that way. They can't propagate that way. There's no way it can be directional. And how can you communicate over them? They're going to go, electrons are going to go wherever they want to go. How could you send them to one part on the world? 
because again they had particle theory not wave theory right and 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 tesla was saying no 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 i have experiments empirically i've tested this you guys are up there with your calculations on the chalkboard i respect you i can do that but i'm getting my hands dirty and i'm going to be moving some electrons to the other part of the world and it'll work now marconi took the credit for a lot of this research he later lost the patents because let's just say he was simultaneously coming about the same ideas. I wouldn't say he necessarily stole some of Tesla's ideas. He certainly was aware of them. I think they both were, I don't care who invented it. I use the Tesla example because he was considered absolutely 100% out of his mind even then. And here we are, the existing infrastructure wanted the telegraph to continue to to exist, the wire to continue to exist. Let me tell you how powerful that was. That was so powerful because you had a copper industry, you have a labor industry. Now think about this. Now this might sound very familiar to us today. If you have hundreds of people, hundreds of companies employing thousands, potentially even millions to support the laying of copper wire from point A to B and later putting voice on that copper wire and later making it a monopoly in the United States, call it AT&T. Mm. What, would, what would have happened? Now, this is, I want to give you an example of what can happen in a wrong setup. We would, have, we would have thought the Industrial Revolution of the United States in the early 1900s was very freewheeling, very free-thinking, very capitalistic. If your idea was better, it was going to get more money. Tesla proved that you did not need to get a wire between point A and B to communicate. That is what we're living today over a hundred years later, imagine if that won the mind share at the time. Imagine if mm. there was true incentivization. Yeah, it really comes down to mind share. Let me, okay, so let me ask you this, and this will be our, our last question. You have to just answer with a thought. So, Faisal, I'll ask you first. So, <clears throat> what truth do we have in society today? You know, it could be in Pakistan, the United States, the the, the world as a whole, that we think that you think will be. Uh, uh, misinterpreted that is currently misinterpreted that we're going to redefine uh, in the future. Okay, so, what, what, which one stands out to you as being? And, and you can't say everything, but no, uh, so which, have, which ones uh, are we drastically flipping our head in the future? In the in the future. So, I think the greater inequality that we have between the rich and the poor. I think that is right now we are being drummed down that these sets of economic rules that we have in play today are best for society, that free markets and an unregulated markets are good for us, etc., etc. I think that is what needs to be challenged and that's the status quo. I mean, it's status quo right now, but that's the status quo that needs to be challenged and flipped back up over in its mm. tail. Mm. Yeah. So essentially saying that because people are in different socioeconomic classes that they're viewed it's not uh, about in different just, values. Just, I mean, you, you have to understand, you know, wealth, some guy is getting more and more and more and more money and they're getting it. And now with that more money, they're very easily able to speculate. Those speculation, that money goes towards speculative markets and speculative investments. It does not go down into the real economy. It does not make new machines. It does not hire more people, more products and services do not come out of it but yet there is so much lobbying i mean you know i i'll tell you for every single congressman in the united or congresswoman in the united states there are five lobbyists from the financial industry alone from the pharmaceutical industry there are about seven think about that for mm -hmm. a moment 
so mm. I think this the, the the greater inequality, the way taxation is made, the, and you know all, all these laws that are coming out now. We had some great laws in the U.S. The nineteen uh, what was it thirty five Act, you know the Wagner Act and the Glass Steagall Act and the Walker Rule and all these things. They've all been thrown away, and this is where we are today. You know, we're in a chaos. Mm. So I think we need mm. to go and re-examine why we are here, why there is acute inequality, and why people are losing money, why the rich are getting absolutely super rich, why billion-dollar compensations for CEO are just like, oh, it's okay, he deserved it. I mean, seriously. Mm. So I think that's yep. that. That's uh, that's my answer. That's awesome. Yeah, good point. Brian, let me ask in this way, which which area, uh, which domain do you think needs to be rethought and flipped on its head that is completely misinterpreted and misunderstood uh, in our society? I got to get back. Uh, there's a lot. It's hard to surface. Just, well, I got I to limit yeah. you here. I, I, I got to get back to one thing. And, uh, I, I, and I would say everything comes from how you view your existence and how you view the world. And so that sounds metaphysical. So let's go down to something concrete. It goes down to what you want to do with the rest of your life and what that life means and whether or not it makes sense to be chunked up into threes of uh, learning, executing, and then dying, whether or not that's the right way to see the world and whether or not that's efficient. And then what learning is about, right? Education, Uh, you know, I say this, that if you think that all of your education is going to come from a university, then I don't care what you're doing in your world right now. You're going to be sidestepped by what we're currently calling technology. It's really progress. It's no different. We just got arrogant about it. We say it's computer it's technology. It's progress. It's what so do you think people do. are. So basically people misinterpret the ideas of technology as being. Yeah. Well, first off. If you are not a lifelong learner, then the rate of change, which is always going to happen faster and faster throughout history, the rate of change keeps accelerating. It gets obviously faster uh, as we get moving forward in time. The ability to comprehend the repercussions of every technological advance is left to less and less people because more and more people can't understand what that technology even represents. So and this how, is would, how, would, how would someone get ahead of this? So if someone realized this and agreed with you, how would they kind of uh, take a step up? It's according to where they are in their life. But I would say it doesn't matter where you are in life. Most people will define it. I'm young. I could change. I would say that wherever you are in your life, you have to start asking yourself, unfortunately, the questions that sound very antiquated. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? And what do I really want my life to represent? You know, and, and I'm not really talking about leaving something to prosperity and, you know, all, you know, I'm, I'm really talking about this idea. What is your mission and drive in your life? And Faisal touched upon this. If the the mission and drive for somebody who's exceedingly wealthy is just to continue to get exceedingly wealthy, um, that will ultimately rot any society at some point. There's no question about it. It's just what happens. And that's and and, and I'm not anti or for any political or monetary system in making that statement. That is an observable fact. So it sounds like sounds like I'm trying to distill your idea down uh, to to the one idea that we're just misinterpreting in society. It sounds like the way we interpret technological development is 
misunderstood and yes. that'll be rethought of in a way in the future as being just part of or ubiquitous to society instead well, of just, oh, those technologists in the corner building things. You know, we have right, to look, look at it as a more ingrained part of life. Sort of. I, I can do it through this repercussion analogy. If one does not truly understand the technology, the, the technologies about advancements, we make unfortunate decisions about where we should as a society move and, and, and what we wind up supporting. I mean, one right. of the biggest challenges right now is food science and what are currently called genetically modified foods sure. and, and, and the use of pesticides, right? So it's really so, – so understanding that and, and really encompassing the knowledge of the technology will just allow us to make better decisions as a society. Um, let and me understanding give you my, the and then, systems of learning, understanding the fact it. that your existence as a human being is to be a learning machine and you don't ever get to retire from that. In mm -hmm. fact, I would assert that retirement from that is is death, that mm -hmm. your life yeah. is a lifelong learning mission. And we've talked about this in the show. The idea that you're going to have structural learning and, and get a university degree and then all is done and then all that money you're paying to get that and its usability might be diminishing into the future. Right. I, we start yeah. looking at education right? could be one in itself. Yeah. yeah. Probably, I would almost say, yeah, that's even if you stuck to just the idea of education being misinterpreted uh, as being a productive construct society that, <laughs> you know, you could look at it and say maybe colleges today are almost more of a harm than good. Uh, that could, you know, that would be a, that would be a, their vocational you know, does, schools. Yeah. Their yeah. vocational so schools, let me and give you have to look at whether you have that vocation available in the future. Period. Let, let me give you mine. So, if we, if you asked me this question, uh, you know, during, you know, two hundred so so years ago, you could say slavery, right? People would say slavery is just a part of life. That these are lesser people, and that they they deserve to, you know, set, to serve us, right? And you break it up by racial classes, and that that was effectively slavery, and that was amazingly. Pro prolific. That just people just assumed that that was okay. That was the way they would grow up. That was just the way it was. And it took leaders and it took people to fight and die to, to just spread the idea that this is wrong. And I think you know my idea here is that I think we look at the way we treat other, um, you know, we look at the way we treat other humans, right? Our species of animals, and say those people we have now a greater degree of empathy with than we did 200 years ago when slavery is around because they're just like us. Right, whether we look different on the outside doesn't change the fact that we all have the same conscious experience and we all go through life in a very similar way. And I think if you extend that same idea, you keep going down and you say the way Brian interprets life, Faisal interprets life, I can kind of resonate with because I can talk to him. I can talk to Faisal and I can he seems just like me, so therefore I assume he experiences life like I do. Therefore he is just as valuable as as I would be and anyone else in, in the human species. But the human species very much puts himself in this own category of protective elitist. And I, I sort of think the way that we treat animals and the way we treat other living organisms is very much the way we treated slaves 250 plus years ago throughout history. And I think the way you, 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 we create food in this country throughout the world, where we have these massive compounds of hundreds of thousands of animals who just get slaughtered with absolutely no respect to any of their subjective needs in life. You know, there's no love, there's no, there's no, anything. There's not just food, place to shit, and then, you know, they cut you open and eat you. And I think that idea is kind of parallel to the idea of slavery. And, and if you, if I flip any common truth that we take for granted today, it's that we value the consciousness and, hum, and human life above other animals. And I think if you fast forward in the future, we'll realize that we're all connected. And just because we have different bodies and frames and skeletal structures uh, doesn't 
diminish the value of a living thing. And I think in the future, we'll value lives of, of animals the same way we do uh, other people. Just because you can't talk to them doesn't mean they're not as valuable. So unrelated I think to anything that's, else. With that's that idea. really quite noble. I really love that. I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. But I, I got to ask you a question. Saying, seeing the world in that, in that regard, what do you think is the one thing a human being can do, listening to our voice right now, that can move one step forward in that direction? What is the thing that they can do to start that journey? Hmm, to go in the direction of challenging and just understanding truth well, that you, may not be true? Uh, well, no, just your, your thesis that you've created on, on uh, oh, re- right. respecting life. Well, I mean, one thing would be how if you saw that, imagine you were um, around during the time of slavery and you felt, man, slavery is obviously wrong. How does everyone else not see this? And so there are people who stand up in the corner. You know, there's a small percentage of the population who are like, this is so wrong. How does not everyone see this? But we kind of flush them away. We push them away because they're a minority. We don't want to listen to them. But eventually enough people join the crowd where it gets a tipping point. And then they start making real impacts and they fight for it, right? And we're sort of there. You see, you know, one of my best friends, she's a vegetarian now. She does it because she realizes that life is valuable regardless of what animal you are. And so she doesn't eat beef, right? And she realizes the, the, the terrible things that go on beyond the hand, behind the scenes. So she's, you know, staking her ground. You know, it's just spreading ideas. All of life is just this idea. So how do you spread ideas? You know, that's no mystery. It's just, you know, you post about it, you talk about it, you share it, and you try to proliferate that idea that just like this podcast, somebody's going to hear this and think, wow, maybe that's true. Maybe the way I think about life and consciousness isn't different if I had three arms or if I was, you know, four-legged or anything else. So why do we, why would we create these torturous situations for other animals? So I think if you talk about, you can change that, you know, there's nothing in life we can't change and overcome as humans if we spread the idea early enough to make an impact, whether it's global warming, nuclear warfare, we can change the orbital structure, orbital pattern of our of our world if we wanted to. If there was an asteroid coming, we could we could shoot off rockets, we could um, change the rotation of the moon to make it so the asteroid would miss us. We could do those things if we understand the ideas and the impacts that it'll make on our society. We collectively work together. But I think it all comes down to how do you spread ideas? How do you plant something in someone else's mind is just around being passionate about it, truly believing it, thinking about it, and then spreading it to other other people. And you can take that in any domain. You can take it in the political domain. I mean, I generally think the side, the political side that I would fare with is the one that is the most empathetic, the one who has thought about the interpretations of the world through the other people's eyes. And that whatever side that is, the one who's who's greater empathy is the side I would fare with. You know, so it, you could take it in the political domain, you could take it in any domain you want, financial, environmental, but the one who says, okay, I understand my perspective, but I'm going to deeply try to understand the world you grew up in, the values and, and constructs and foundations you look at the world with, and I'm going to, st- and then I'm going to still make a decision. Uh, and I, and so with that, I think it's just about how do you be empathetic in the world? How do you look through the other people's eyes that have other opinions that, that, uh, that, um, clash with yours? And if you can understand theirs and you understand yours, you still fare with yours, then I think you're moving in the right direction. One last question on this. What do you think is the impediment to this? What we, we're now more openly communicating through social media than ever yeah. before. Oh, and, and, and you could literally put this notion out to the world. And what happens to it on social media? The, the impediment, the impediment, like we discussed in the last episode, I think is is philosophy, the love of wisdom. If you don't have the desire to learn and you don't have the desire to 
uh, see life through other people's eyes. You're not going to develop that level of empathy. You're not going to develop that level of challenging ideas in society. Even, you know, Faisal's example, your example, they're all great examples, but you have to have enough people who think I'm going to challenge the common consensus, the common idea, and maybe just think, maybe it'd be wrong and that's okay. But how do you get enough people to think like that, to, to, to really employ a level of empathy in their life, uh, and, and develop it, like you said, a passion for learning post-grad after you, after you graduate school, that's the time to really double down on your love of learning and spreading that idea to other people. Otherwise, what if you go the other direction? So it's a spectrum. What if you rewind it and you say, okay, let's, let's completely ignore all history, all learnings thus far. Kids that are born today, they just grow up, they raise, you know, they play sports and then that's it. They don't read. They're never going to have to go to school. You would literally move in the other direction. We would go back in a state of tribal warfare. We would go back in a state of technological face falling. And so I think you have to just look at that one dimension and say, the acquisition of uh, intelligence, it, it, knowledge, and perspective in the world is the thing that prol proliferates us and keeps us here in the long run. But with that, we are a little over time, so I want to wrap up. Guys, it's been an amazing conversation. Uh, I love Brian, it. Bye, so as always. Thank you. We'll speak next week. Have a great week, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.